Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. What images comes to mind when you think of Antarctica? Most people think of penguins, glaciers, and the most extreme cold on Earth. Life on the Great Continent is changing, and scientists are working tirelessly to better understand how climate change is impacting the ecosystem on the world's least populated continent. Today on Where We Live, we learn about Antarctica and hear what life is like for the people that live and work there. Joining us now is David W. Brown, contributor to The New Yorker and author to the forthcoming book, The Outside Cats. He writes about his journey to Antarctica in his recent article, Journey to Doomsday, published by The New Yorker. David, welcome to our show. Thank you very much for having me this morning. And you can join us also on 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. David, we want to start with asking you, what drew you to visit Antarctica? I, I think everybody on on some level has a desire to go to Antarctica the same way you might have a desire to visit the moon or Mars. Um, it just so happens that Antarctica is slightly uh, more accessible. Um, and also, I mean, as a journalist, I mean, one of perhaps the most pressing issues, if not the most pressing issue of, of our time is climate change. And if, if, if this story is happening, I, I felt like I needed to go where, where the heart of the action was. And what makes expeditions to Antarctica unique? In, in your recent article about your trip, you write that there's no room for passive observers. Tell us about that. Well, the, the places, so I've been there, I've been on two expeditions there, one in 2019 and one um, that culminated earlier this year. And um, in both instances, they were fairly deep in the field. Um, not really like, I mean, the, the, Nas- the U.S. National Science Foundation does like these little journalist jaunts to McMurdo Station. But that's kind of like visiting a, a small town, like it's a very organized and managed sort of thing. But the places I go are fairly deeper uh, on the ice, as they say. And these research positions are very, they're very expensive. They're very rare, and and these are very difficult places to get to. And for that reason, there's no room for someone to just have a pen and a notebook in their hand and watch other people work. If you're there, you're going to work. You're going to be an active member of a research team. And so that's, I just happen to have a skill set that was useful to uh, to doing that. And I think you just painted a, a picture of reality. It's a, it's a place that you need specific skills in order to survive, pretty much. Um, so why don't you take us on the ice with you? How did you prepare to go on, go to Antarctica? And what kind of skills did you have that prepared you for this trip? So the, the most recent one, well, I mean, so to give some of my background, um, my my undergraduate degree is in computer science, and um, for, for a very long time ago, this was back when computers were made of wood, and um, and I'm also uh, 
a former U.S. Army paratrooper, so I had some experience, like leaning out of, you know, spending some time in an aircraft doing weird and unexpected things. And I ran rotary wing operations for my task force in Afghanistan, so I, I'm very familiar with helicopters. And all this happened to come together because for this most recent research trip, we would be flying from atop an icebreaker boat in a helicopter and sort of leaning out of this helicopter and and deploying these 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 expendable probes we called them torpedoes into the ice and they would send sort of signals back to these computers and we would run scripts to be able to sort of interpret that data so that's that's a little bit about my background and why um you know why why i had you know why i was allowed to even uh, join now to prepare specifically for this expedition we had to do probably the most interesting thing that we had to do and there were a lot of things but everything from, you know, CPR training and, and that sort of thing to uh, what, what I consider the most extreme was helicopter egress training. So you're in this sort of simulate, you, you, this was at a, a facility um, in Louisiana, in Lafayette, Louisiana, and you're in like a, a simulated helicopter that, that is suspended with cranes and, and it's plunging you constantly into the, into this giant pool of swimming pool and turning you upside down, you're strapped in, you have to learn how to, you know, escape, how to get your, how to maintain a presence of mind when you're submerged in water, to unbuckle your belt, how to push the window out, how to escape a helicopter and not get chopped up by blades or caught up in, you know, oil that might be on fire on the surface of the water and things like that. So the, the training was actually very well done, uh, fairly intense, looked great on Instagram. So I got lots of likes and that's really what this is all about, right? <laughs> you know it. Um, well, I'm glad that you're an Antarctica influencer. Otherwise, we would not be having this conversation right now because it's so fascinating. And as somebody who needs like ginger chews just to go on a canoe on a lake, this sounds really intense. So how do you also prepare for the extreme weather down there? So one thing that I did not know that existed on, on this Earth planet is how intense the waves of the Southern Ocean are. These are 20 foot waves and and I had never before in my life I'd never been on the sea really, let alone had seasickness. And I mean I've, I'd, I'd, so I'd been on a cruise once and and like the boat would rock like 0.1 degree and people were like, oh, I'm feeling seasick. Well, now that I've been on boats where it's rocking in either direction, 19 or 20 degrees and then forward four or five degrees forward and back, that was amongst the, the most physically, unpleasant experiences of my life and and uh i i i now know that i'm not cut out for uh for, for, for the for the pirate's life the um when you're down there of course you have extraordinary uh, cold weather gear so you tend to sweat more than you, you're you're cold um because you're, you're just kept so warm with the gear that you have and i don't know how how men like shackleton did it i i, I imagine that that we're a lot better off with our synthetic fabrics and 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 here we are living in the future with our flying cars. But um, I would say overall, um, there's really no preparing for Antarctica on some level. Like there's just, once you experience it, once you're there, everything's different. And then, then everything, it's its sort of like Hingway described Paris as a movable feast. I mean, you, you take Antarctica with you when you leave. And, and part of your preparation, can you share with us a little bit more about what a snow school is? Oh, okay. So the first time I went, um, at, uh, we, we, we went to Casey station on the Eastern coast of the continent. That's an Australian base. And, um, it's a small, I think there's something like 50 to 75 people 
there. And, you know, there's no, no one in any direction for 900, mi 900 miles or something. And uh, so snow school was, um, you actually practice all the emergency things you would do in a terrible situation in Antarctica. So you, you have all of your gear, you've got your rucksack with your, I don't even remember the things that were in it. You know, you've got your water, you've got emergency rations and things like that. And, and you're, you're literally sleeping on the ice that night. You're just, you're just laying on top of Antarctica, staring up at pristine skies surrounded by, uh, you know, white, um, horrifying, terrifying white in every direction. And, but you also practice things like what to do if there is a terrible blizzard, how would you, how would you get from point A to point B? If you had to, if someone is lost, how do we do a grid formation to find them and things like that? It's, it's really quite a, it's really quite an intense school. And, and, and it was a, I'm really glad I had the experience simply because of how unusual it was. Well, and I was going to say, there's like, like you mentioned earlier that you can't really prepare for Antarctica in some level. And if you've gone through this training in this school, did you find yourself in a situation where all that training and experience kicked in? No, thank God. No, no, no. It was, it was, um, um, in, in every instance, it was, it, it, for example, this most recent time when we were, I was with the South Korean, uh, the Kopri, the Korean um, Polar Research Institute. Um, you know, our helicopter pilots were extremely uh, meticulous in their in their planning, and and we we did a lot of safety briefings and things like that. And they they poured over the weather reports to make sure that when we would go out, we wouldn't find ourselves in a dangerous situation. That said, every time we flew out, it was with the expectation that this is the time when the helicopter crashes in the water. This is the time when everything's going to go, going to fall apart. And so you must, you sort of have to go in with that mindset. And that's, that's what keeps people alive. Complacency is what kills people in Antarctica or anywhere, really. So you, you opened this article saying your voyage was going to last two months. What were you planning to do during that time? So I was with um, a small research group. Um, I, I was I was sponsored there by the the University of Texas at Austin. The the, um, the 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 person that I was with specifically was with Scripps um, Scripps Institute in San Diego. And what we were doing, um, the the hard part for Thwaites Glacier, which is where we went, that's called sort of quote unquote the Doomsday Glacier, right? It's a place that is currently destabilizing and uh, has the potential for several feet of it, several feet of sea level rise um the hard part is it's very difficult to get to it's probably the most difficult place on the planet to get to and accordingly there's no real or there's not much scientific data about what's going on in the water beneath the ice uh, we, we we sort of tend to imagine that nasa satellites are doing all the heavy lifting here they they, they they're just measuring everything and everything's fine but in fact uh, you know, even the most powerful satellite that NASA has in orbit over the Earth can only see about a millimeter into the water. Like, like satellites just can't do that. People have to do that up close. So to do that, we would we we would fly in these helicopters from atop. You know, we would take off from the icebreaker boat. We would fly, usually fly deep into the continent, stop at a fuel site, land there, and you know, refuel the helicopter and go deeper, sort of into Thwaites. And while we were there, we were sort of skulking around. 
um, very, very low to the ice, looking for cracks in the ice. And it could be very, a very small crack. I mean, it could be, you know, four or five feet across um, with dark water because it was, that meant that, that water would go all the way, you know, a thousand meters down into the, into the Amundsen Sea below. And the idea was we would deploy these, we called them torpedoes. They're like these expendable sensors. They look like torpedoes. And you just th- sort of throw them from the air into that water. Um, or if, the, if, if it's frozen over, hopefully it'll break through the ice and into the water. And it's going to return this information back to the helicopter on the depth of the water and the temperature and the salinity and things like that. And what you're measuring is how is the hot ocean water sort of being mainlined into the continent? How is how is Antarctica being destabilized from below? Because that's the big problem. And we, we imagine that um, because of, you know, global warming, right? The, the earth is hotter above, Antarctica is like a piece of ice sitting on a sidewalk and it's melting. Well, really the problem is Antarctica is being eroded from beneath because of the reorganization of the atmosphere due to climate change. The currents of the of the ocean have also been reorganized, and because of this reorganization, hot hot ocean water is arriving in places in Antarctica that it shouldn't. And we're trying to measure, you know, where is that hot water? How hot is it? How fast is it moving? Where's you know how deep under the ice has it gotten? And with that, modelers can figure out you know how much time is it going to take for this to totally destabilize. And so what does that all sounds really dramatic. So what does that mean for the continent and even even for the area surrounding the continent? I mean, that's that's one of the things that they're trying to study. That's that's a big unknown. Part of the problem with the climate change conversation and part of the problem that scientists run into is that there's just a lack of data um, in, in places like this. And what is and unknown presently is, is this a five-year problem? Is this a 50-year problem? Is this a 500-year problem? Because with that information, you can go to civil engineers. You can go to lower Manhattan and say, look, in 50 years, you're going to see water on your sidewalks. You should start preparing now. You can go to the city of New Orleans, where I live, and say, look, in 75 years, you've got some serious things you need to reconsider um or you could or or they might find hey new orleans don't worry about it it's 500 years from now we'll figure it out by then and that would be great news that doesn't seem to be the news that we're going to get but figuring out when these glaciers are going to collapse when this ice is going to slide into the water when these things are going to melt is vital to help the rest of the world the coastal cities of the world shanghai or 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 you name it prepare for the future and to determine when that future will be. And so you mentioned earlier, there's only so much that NASA satellites can do, and you're there skulking around looking for cracks. And this is a very hands-on thing, collecting data. Can you tell us a bit more about how important it is to get that data? So climate models are built, I mean, they're they're essentially mathematical models. that look at how the world is today, how the world used to be, and figure out how the world will be tomorrow. And they're very sophisticated, and they're very difficult to write, and they're also prone to great inaccuracy. It's almost impossible, for example, to model the atmosphere with any real precision going forward 
you know, 10 years, 100 years, 1,000 years, and actually hit the target. It's likewise nearly impossible to do the same thing for the ocean. Likewise, it's nearly impossible to do the same thing for the ice. So if you're trying to model the ice, the, the atmosphere, and the ocean together, it's an extraordinary challenge. And, and modelers have done a very fine job working with, you know, not as much data as they as they would like and so what what polar researchers are doing is going there and collecting the data because with that data with those data you can pour that into the model and you can rerun the system and figure out ah this is correct or ah this is incorrect and we can correct for it um, the more data you have um, the more uh, precise these models can get and that's what that's you know that's what they're working on and that's that's hard work, and it's 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 very it's very, you get your hands dirty sort of work. I, I think I mentioned in the article that you're far more likely to to reach for a you know a hammer or a, or a wrench than you are for you know a, a beaker or a test tube test tube rack. It's 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 very blue collar work, right? You're moving heavy things around. You're, you're opening up boxes, wooden boxes, and and hammering wooden crates closed. You're you're hauling things back and forth across the ice. It's it's what people imagine climate scientists are doing. And I think this is part of the problem with the climate change discussion. People imagine this is just scientists sitting in Ivy League classrooms, drinking tea and, and almost speaking religion rather than fact. In fact, what's going on on the ground is um, men and women doing hard work in difficult places, collecting the ice, to answer the questions and it, it cannot be overstated enough. I think that they're not going in there already knowing the answer. Like they're trying to give you the right answer so that we can have a sort of a happier future on this planet. And it's very awe-inspiring to watch. And this is very much related to what you wrote in your article, and I love that you said this. Um, climate scientists often feel a mixture of pride and foreboding. Pride because they can shed light on our collective future, foreboding because it's a future they fear. Can you unpack that for us? Well, I imagine that any researcher in any field, whether it's biology, if you're studying cancer or or, or in this case, earth science studying the, the collapse of um, critical glaciers in Antarctica, you see what's ha happening. I mean, you, 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 you have the data in front of you and you recognize immediately, this is not good. You should be very proud because you have done the work to collect this data in the first place or these data in the first place, because this is a very, very difficult place to be. It's a very unpleasant place to be. It's gorgeous and it's life changing. And the human mind has no true analog. The things that I saw there, I, I, I thought, wow, the special effects here are great. That was like my instant reaction. It was like I was watching a movie. I couldn't believe the things that I was seeing were real. So it is a place that that touches you in some very profound way. Um, but to get there, it's difficult. It's, it's, it's hard and brutish work, I guess you could say. So they should be, they're very proud that they've been able to get this data, but, or these data, but, but the fact that um, what they're finding is so grim 
and and worse yet that the, their findings are very frequently simply dismissed out of hand because it's much easier to ignore a problem than to face hard truths um that, that can be very dispiriting to them so it's we have an interesting future ahead from Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Catherine Shen. That was David W. Brown, contributor to The New Yorker and author to the forthcoming book, The Outside Cats. We'll link to his article, Journey to Doomsday, on our website. David, thank you so much for sharing your experience with us today. Thank you so much for letting me be here. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygen it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Today, we are learning about Antarctica from those that live and work there and work to protect its climate and wildlife. As we heard from David, living on this remote continent requires intense preparation. Joining us now from New Zealand is Matt Jordan, project manager for Antarctica New Zealand and board member for the Antarctican Society. Thanks so much for joining us, Matt. No worries, Catherine. Good morning. It is very early for Matt. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter. So we will jump right to it, Matt. I um, want to talk about what attracted you to Antarctica in the first place. I've always been quite fascinated with the wildlife down there and the natural, natural landscapes. So it was the, the ice and the penguins that originally drew me there first, but um Expanding on my background in civil and construction engineering, I, I figured getting to Antarctica was never going to be something that would be achievable for me until I found the, the Scott Base Redevelopment Project that Antarctica New Zealand are working through where I could apply both, on, both my skills and expertise and background, but also have the opportunity to visit and see the penguins and the, the natural landscapes there as well. I will have you know that I'm wearing penguin socks today in honor of this conversation. <laughs> um, can you paint us a typical day for you um, working there? What does your work look like? Sure. So we start uh, in the morning at about eight o'clock and we'll wake up and go through a toolbox talk, which will be a discussion about the activities for the day 
and the mitigations that we're going to put in place to make sure that those activities get done safely. Um, we'll then do a couple of hours work. Uh, we have our, well, our second meal of the day at, at sort of 10 o'clock where we'll all gather together for a morning tea and again, just discuss the day's activities, check in on how things are going. Uh, we'll head back outside until lunchtime, do some more work outside and then come in for lunch and we'll, we'll debrief the morning's activities. Um, after lunchtime, we'll head back out again for another couple of hours before afternoon tea. Um, again, sit down, debrief the afternoon's activities over a, a cup of tea and a biscuit. And then in the afternoon, we'll head back outside again for another couple of hours work before the workday finishes at about 5 p.m. And you're currently in New Zealand right now. When do you return to Antarctica? So, uh, yeah, I recently returned from Scott Base about two weeks ago. I had my first trip of the season there um, for, for a few weeks to set things up. But I'll be heading back south again on the 30th of January. And the interesting part about this trip is I'll be wintering over for my, for my first time. So I'll be there when the, the sun sets for about four months and then, yeah, pops back up again in around August or September time. So it's going to be quite an exciting adventure. Wow, that sounds pretty amazing. Did you have to do any extra or different preparations for that? Uh, slightly different. So the, the medical process for that was slightly more intense, given that we don't have the accessibility to flights during the winter that we normally have in the summer. So yeah, just slightly higher um, medical procedures that we needed to go through to be approved to head down for the, the winter time. But generally, everything else is pretty much the same. And so working around wildlife, is there a challenge doing that when you're there? Absolutely, yeah. So we, um, towards the second part of the season, do start to see some of the wildlife come in as the temperatures warm up seasonally. And some of the protocols that we have in place are if, for example, a penguin comes onto the research station, we've got distances that we need to maintain, whether we're uh, acting as pedestrians or if we're in vehicles. So if we're on foot, we have a distance of 10 metres or 30 feet that we need to stay from the, the wildlife. Um, the caveat there is if you sit down and the wildlife approaches you because they are quite curious, then that's okay. But obviously we're not reaching out to, to pat them or, or to touch them. Uh, and in a vehicle, we have restrictions of 200 metres. So um, we won't drive a vehicle uh, any, any closer than 200 metres to any, any sort of wildlife. So we talked about your penguin colleagues and the wildlife colleagues. And what about your human colleagues? What does the what does the community look like working down there? So it's, it's quite a tight knit community. So Scott Base itself at the moment holds 86 people, so 86 beds. And we have a, a star, seasonal staff of about 35 to 40 that uh, are working there through the full summer season. And their task is just to operate and maintain the base and make sure that things are ticking over. Um, and at the same time, support the incoming scientists with all of the um, all of the help that they need to get them out the door and doing their research. So that could be anything from uh, a water engineer making the drinking water and processing our human waste. That could be the power engineer that keeps the lights on, or it could be a field support person who's an expert in something like glaciology that will head out with a science group to make sure that they maintain um, the, their safety in the field. 
Um, but it also, it could be someone like the chef as well who just keeps the food moving because the, the base really marches on its stomach. And um, yeah, food is a, a really important time to come together and debrief on the day's activities. I was going to say, that's definitely an important part of everyone's day, I feel like. And can you talk about Antarctica conditions and what it's like to gear up for going outside? Like, how did you prepare for that? Sure. So we get kitted out um, with all of our our extreme cold weather gear in Christchurch before we go. And that's something that we wear with us on the flight as well, so that when we step off the plane, we're all ready to, um, to embrace the cold conditions. Similar to what David mentioned earlier about snow school, once we arrive, we go through a process called Antarctic field training, where we undergo pretty similar uh, tasks as David uh, mentioned earlier on. So we will go out and we'll spend a night in a tent and we'll learn how to you know, cook our meals for the day. We'll learn how to use the toilet in the middle of the field and um, basically just learn how to how to survive, work out what layering system works for us with all of the different clothing that we've got. Um, it does take a little bit of time to get your head around what clothing needs to be worn in what's, what conditions. And uh, everyone is different, but it, after about a two-week period, you become quite comfortable given the, the temperature and you'll, you'll know pretty well what you need to put on to be warm outside for, for the period of time that you're out there. And what is it like dealing with um, being there during times of no sunlight and constant darkness? Yeah, so I haven't actually done my first winter yet, so I'm not quite sure what it's like without the sun, but I can comment on the 24 hours of sunlight that we do experience in the summer. Yeah. So that in itself is quite an interesting place. It's quite different and, again, does take quite a bit of time to get used to. Um, one of the the most confusing things is obviously trying to sleep at night time. So the bedrooms that we have have big uh, blackout shuttered windows, so that when you you do get into that routine of going to bed, you you close the window and yeah, it simulates uh, night time. So we artificially simulate our our circadian rhythms in that regard. But the um, the other challenge there comes with uh, living and working with other people. So we do share bedrooms down at Scott Base. And it's it's good to establish a good routine and a working relationship with those people that you're sharing the bedrooms with so that you're all kind of on the same schedule to head to bed at the same time and wake up around the same time as well. Well, you've been doing this for a little bit. And can you share with us what are some common misconceptions of Antarctica that you find yourself having to battle against? The, the first one that comes up quite a lot is people often ask what it's like to work with polar bears. And of course, it's it's the, the other side of the world where the polar bears live up in the Arctic. So um, we don't actually have to deal with polar bears. We just have penguins and seals and uh, a few birds and whales here and there. But um, that's probably the one that I hear the most of. Um, the other misconception, like David mentioned earlier as well, is that the weather is not horrible all of the time. So 95% of the time, um, yeah, it's still going to be cold. It will be below freezing, but it is totally fine to walk outside and work. Um, it's not blowing storms and blizzarding 24-7. It's um, Most of the time, it's usually pretty mild. Um, nothing worse than a, a northern US winter or a Canadian winter or something like that. So um, yeah, a common misconception that it's just completely inhospitable 24-7, but um, that's not quite the case. Well, that's really good to know. I did not know that. Um, so no country officially owns Antarctica. How does that work? 
Yeah, so the continent itself is governed by the Antarctic Treaty. And the Antarctic Treaty basically says that Antarctica is owned by no one, but is protected by everyone. So the the main purpose of the Antarctic Treaty system is to ensure that Antarctica is reserved for exclusively exclusively um, science and peaceful purposes. Joining us now is Claire Christian, Executive Director of ASOC or the Antarctic and Southern Ocean Coalition. Claire, welcome to the show. Morning. Thanks for having me. What does your role and work look like at the ASOC? What attracted you to working to doing the work to preserve Antarctica? So our organization is the only environmental um, NGO or non-governmental organization that has official observer status within the Antarctic Treaty system, which means that we can go to meetings where the countries that have signed the Antarctic Treaty um, meet and uh, discuss what they want to do in terms of carrying out the functions of that treaty. And we can advocate for policies that we think would enhance the conservation of the Antarctic environment. Um, And I think what drew me to the job was just that uh, Antarctica is a really unique place. Um, As as was just stated, it's it's not owned by anyone. And uh, through the the decades as the Antarctic Treaty system has been in place, there is has developed this very strong ethic of working to conserve it on behalf of of everyone. And I think that's really important, especially um, in this era of, of, you know, a climate change and biodiversity crisis. And we need to work together globally to uh, to have any kind of hope of addressing those those problems. And I think Antarctica shows that if people are willing to put aside short term um, financial gain, uh, they can accomplish amazing things. For example, there's a mining ban in place in Antarctica, and that mining ban only came about after years of discussing possibly opening up the continent to mining. Um, And uh, at some point, the the values changed and people said, no, it's too risky to bring destructive activities to this uh, largely untouched wilderness. And I think that's a really important lesson for the rest of the world that that we can we can make the right choice um, and make ambitious environmental policies and protect the world's uh, important places. Can you explain what the treaty says about scientific investigation in Antarctica? Uh, well, it basically, um, it's, it's pretty simple. Um, you know, the, the continent is a place for, for peace and science. Um, there is an environment protocol in place that requires, um, you know, activities to be subject to environmental impact assessments. So yes, you can do science in Antarctica, but that's, you know, not just unlimited. You just decide to do something and you go down there, you are supposed to, um, you know, first examine the impacts of of those activities. Um, Most Antarctic programs, national Antarctic programs, uh, you know, require permits for things like handling wildlife, um, for installing equipment, even if it's temporary, and for uh, constructing stations. Um, And all of that is because even though science is one of the primary activities that happens in Antarctica, uh, the environment has to be considered too. Um, and so I think that's also one of the strengths of, of the Antarctic Treaty is that it's really focused um, even on something that somebody, you know, from the outside might not think has a big impact. Um, they're taking a precautionary look and saying, okay, before you uh, drill these ice cores or before you, um, you know, set up this monitoring station, you need to look at the possible impacts on of that and uh, determine if it's still safe. 
And then speaking of impacts, um, how is climate change affecting Antarctica? Are we seeing milder temperatures? Uh, yes, it's a big place. Um, so the, the impacts are not uniform around the continent. But for example, the Antarctic Peninsula, which is that little area that sticks out if you look at Antarctica on a map, um, that is one of the fastest warming areas on the planet. Um, and we are seeing a lot of changes there. Um, they are seeing some shifts in the population of krill. Um, it's moving further south because it's getting warmer in the more northerly areas. Um, some of the po uh, penguin populations in the Antarctic Peninsula um, are declining, not all of them, but some, um, because there are species of penguins like Adelie and chinstrap penguins that are what we call ice-loving penguins. And so as, as the, that area gets warmer, um, the environment is, is less conducive to their uh, survival uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, and I think we are also just seeing um, warmer temperatures. A, a temperature record was set uh, a couple years ago. And um, so the, this, is, this is a heavily impacted area. And this is also an area where a lot of human activity is concentrated. There's a lot of scientific research going on there. That's where most of the tourists also visit is the Antarctic Peninsula. Um, so we are seeing kind of a, a, an increase in, in impacts in Antarctica, even though it's a big place. And even though there are not a lot of people living there, um, even on a temporary basis, it is a very sensitive environment and um, climate change is really affecting it rapidly. So we have about a minute left, but I want Matt to respond as well. You know, you've been working on Antarctica for about five years. Have you started to see the impact of climate change during your experience there? Uh, not personally. So for me, five years is quite a, a short period of time to establish a baseline to monitor any changes. Um, so yeah, not not personally. There there are um, kind of seasonal temperature differences that we do encounter. So in around the December, January, February time, we do uh, occasionally get temperatures that are above freezing, which results in uh, snow melt. But um, yeah, anecdotally from myself, the um, the five years that I've been going there, I haven't personally seen a a, a huge change. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Catherine Shen. Matt Jordan, project manager for Antarctica New Zealand and board member for the Antarctican Society, and Claire Christian, executive director for the Antarctic and Southern Ocean Coalition, will stay with us. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Today, we're learning about life on Antarctica and how climate change is impacting this continent. Joining us now is Talbot Andrews, assistant professor with the Department of Political Science studying climate policy at UConn. Thanks for joining us, Talbot. Hi, thanks so much for having me. You can also join the conversation 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Talbot, can you explain to us what are ice shelves? 
So an ice shelf is a place where the glaciers um, in Antarctica flow down into the ocean. Uh, they act as a barrier where the land ice or the glacier is um, and the sea ice that's floating on the ocean. And what causes this to break apart? Uh, well, warming. Um, warming both in the air and in the ocean, like David was talking about earlier in the hour. So climate change is speeding up um, this melting. And can you talk about any recent ice shelves that we've seen break apart? Yes. Uh, in March earlier this year, the Conger ice shelf in East Antarctica collapsed into the ocean. Um, and while this itself uh, didn't make a big contribution to things like sea level rise, it might be a warning sign of more things to come. Well, you mentioned warning sign. I'm wondering, how is what's happening in Antarctica um, impact us here in Connecticut? Because we're also a coastal region. Is there a relationship there? Yeah, so while Antarctica is on the other side of the world, what's happening there does have impacts here in Connecticut. Um, so as uh, land ice in Antarctica is melting and as the ocean is warming from climate change, we're going to see more and more sea level rise over the next decades. Um, and because so much of, it, of Connecticut is on the coast, we're going to be feeling the impacts of that sea level rise. And is it difficult to advocate for protecting Antarctica since it's so far away, it's remote? Do you find that most people ignore this continent and what's happening there? <laughs> yeah, um, getting people to care about climate change and getting people to care about these impacts is really hard. Um, as a political scientist, most of my research is how on how people think about climate change, how they think about the environment, and how they think about protecting places like Antarctica. Um, and it's it's really difficult for those of us who've never been there. I'm very jealous of the other people here who have um, to picture it and to care about it and to feel the kind of connection that motivates supporting policies that protect places like Antarctica. And um, you mentioned, you know, one of the bigger problems is to get people to to care or to want to protect. Um, what can you what can we do? What can you do to sort of help stop this from continuing to happen? Well, so as we start, as the sea levels start to rise, we're unfortunately going to be feeling more severe consequences of climate change here in Connecticut. Um, so, for example, as we experience more hurricanes, the storm flooding that happens associated with those hurricanes is going to be worse as the sea levels are higher. And while that's terrible and that's not something that we want to happen those kinds of local impacts with climate change are generally pretty effective at getting people to care about climate change. It makes people pay more attention to the issue and more willing to support expensive policies to help us stop climate change, which ultimately helps protect Antarctica. And, you know, from where from where you're standing and, and what you're researching and studying and teaching, are these ice shelves going to be breaking apart at a quicker rate? Um, so uh, as a political scientist, I'm keeping up with this because I'm interested in how people think about it. Um, so I'll just I'll give that caveat, though. I am a political scientist, not a glaciologist. Um, I think these pieces of the ice shelf breaking off are very concerning. Um, as David and others on this program today have mentioned, it's really difficult to predict exactly what's going to happen. We're using these mathematical models to try and figure out when these glaciers are going to keep melting. And these ice shelves help stop the melting of the glaciers. And so as they break off and as these big pieces break off in ways that we weren't expecting, it's a bad sign for things to come. 
And just switching gears real quick here, I'm going to take a call from Richard from Westerly, Rhode Island, who has wintered at South Pole and wants to share his experience. Richard, can you hear us? Yeah, yeah, sure can. Um, What I was just responding to is you had asked uh, Matt about what it was like to live without direct sunlight. And of course, the one terrestrial place on Earth where that uh, where you get six months without sunlight is at the South Pole itself. Um, my feeling, thinking back on it, was after several months of that, I, I sort of came to believe that I, I just lived in a place where there was no sunlight. That, uh, like going into a closet when you were a kid, you knew that it was dark in there. And you, you didn't really think that you wouldn't see the sun again. You just felt that you had to go someplace else. You had to fly out uh, in order to experience sunlight again. I want to thank Richard for sharing that experience with us. And pivoting back to Claire, I want to ask you real quick, can you talk about the impact on wildlife in terms of climate change? Uh, yes. Well, as I, as I mentioned um you know, some penguin species really depend on ice. So we're already seeing um, declines in those populations um, in the Antarctic Peninsula where the, you know, the, the situation is warming. Um, there's other little things like, uh, you know, penguin chicks, uh, when they're born, um, they're covered in this kind of more fluffy down and um, before they get their waterproof adult feathers. And uh, one consequence of a warming uh, Antarctic Peninsula is more precipitation because Antarctica is actually usually the driest continent on Earth. And um, so when those chicks get uh, wet, then it's wet and cold. And they, since they're not waterproof, they might freeze because it's too cold for them and they can't dry off effectively. So little things like that. Um, There's also been um, a prediction that that uh, emperor penguins, which are kind of an iconic Antarctic species uh, that many people are familiar with from from movies and and that kind of thing, um, they are also ice dependent. They breed on the ice. And so if the sea ice continues to um, decline, they could be extinct by 2100, which is um, actually not that far off. Um, So we are seeing these impacts on wildlife already. Um, and I mentioned uh, krill are, are shifting their distribution, and that's really important because even though they are a tiny crustacean and they're not as cute as penguins, penguins eat them, many other species eat them. They are critical to the Antarctic uh, food web, um, and they are also vulnerable to ocean acidification, um, which is when increased carbon dioxide concentrations in the air results in a more acidic seawater, and um, so that is also affecting them as well. Um, the Southern Ocean is already naturally uh, low in uh, some of the minerals that that marine species need and more acidic waters tends to result in, in the breakdown of these minerals. Um, so we are already seeing these impacts on Antarctic wildlife and uh, we can only expect to see more um, because many of these species are, they are very exquisitely adapted to the Antarctic environment. So when there are changes in that environment, they may not be able to evolve quickly enough to keep up with them, particularly when the changes are happening on really short time scales, like, you know, decades. So we got about a minute left, but I would like to bring Matt back real quick on some final thoughts. What do you hope our listeners will take away from this conversation? Yeah, I'd, I'd really like the listeners just to get a better understanding of the scientific work that's happening down in Antarctica. There are obviously some large global questions that need answering, and it's with the support of the National Antarctic Programs and other science research 
uh, independent research that's happening that will will get the answer to some of these questions. So if the, the group would like to go on and, and educate themselves a little bit more about what the, what is happening down there and the work that's being supported by the National Antarctic Programs, then I think we'll, we'll have done our job here today. You've been listening to Talbot Andrews, Assistant Professor with the Department of Political Science studying climate policy at UConn, and Claire Christian, Executive Director of the Antarctic and Southern Ocean Coalition. Thank you both for being on the show today. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. You've also been listening to Matt Jordan, who's a project manager for the Antarctic New Zealand and board member for the Antarctic uh, Society. Thank you so much for sharing your experience with us and safe travels on your next trip to Antarctica. You're welcome. Thanks very much, Catherine. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show was produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.